It's the Last Call podcast with Chris Michaels. After a riveting week of mythology, I will be getting back to the normal stuff. However, I'm going to sprinkle other little nuggets of intelligence all throughout the week so as to not get so focused on politics and current events that people's eyes glaze over, mouths start opening, and people start sleeping with drool running all down their faces and onto their sweaters and clothing and so on and so forth. However, there's a lot that's been going on lately. Have you anybody hear about Acapulco lately? I mean, nobody knows. The mainstream media hasn't spoken about it, of this massive hurricane that hit Acapulco in Mexico and completely demolished the place. I mean, we are talking about a really bad situation. I looked at Google Maps uh, at Acapulco because I had no idea where exactly it was on the western coast of Mexico. And you can see all throughout the region that the roads are completely closed. And I'm not talking about slowdowns. I'm talking about absolutely, unequivocally closed. That's it. End of story. Nobody's getting in or out. And where's the mainstream media on all of this? Well, there was a little thing on CNN, wasn't too uh, detailed, but immediately, as Dr. Joseph Farrell over at GizaDeathStar.com has pointed out, they tried to phrase and categorize this hurricane as the result of man-made climate change. And they talked about disruptive high-level winds, about Hurricane Otis's strength, and as Tuesday progressed, they said, it became clear environmental conditions were not playing out as forecasters expected. Well, right there is a phrase that they are trying to put into your head that this is not natural. This hurricane is not what we expected. And if it's not what we expected, then clearly it's the result of man-made climate change. So they even go further by saying that scientists have defined rapid intensification as wind speed increases of at least 35 miles per hour in 24 hours of lo- or less. I mean, this hurricane hit the coast at like 160 miles per hour uh, or 165 miles per hour, something along those lines. And no joke. I mean, this wind came out of nowhere and it increased really, really quickly. More than 90% of the warming around the globe over the past 50 years, has taken place in the oceans. And in order to reach those high speeds so quickly, it required significant ocean heat. So that's the angle here. They're now claiming that the oceans are so hot due to man-made climate change uh, that these hurricanes are going to be more and more common throughout mankind's history over the next couple of years. So let's let's try to find out where did all of this heat come from? Oh, could it be cow farts? Maybe it's because of all of those automobiles that are being driven around on the surface of the water. Uh, well, no, that's not the case. Uh, well, it, what could it, could it possibly be in some form or another one of two things? Could it be man-made climate change through heart technology where they heat up the ionosphere, change the electromagnetic fields in certain areas in a localized effect? kind of situation where these hurricanes are being manipulated by this kind of technology. I mean, I've ventured so far as to say that 5G 
is part of this kind of technology. Could it possibly, possibly within the realm of our timeline that the sun is going through a massive change, a massive cyclical change that occurs throughout history? This is not something new where the sun is manipulating the oceans, manipulating the temperatures and the electromagnetic fields and what the weather is supposed to be like on this earth. I mean, the sun, the last time I checked, is about to flip its poles, which is not an uncommon event for the sun. Imagine that. Imagine if the earth flipped its poles like the sun and Nothing happened. You can't say that nothing is going to happen if the poles flip. Some kind of event is going to occur when that massive geological flip or electromagnetic flip occurs. You're going to have all kinds of different events that take place across the globe and and possibly throughout the solar system. So we are now seeing that, oh my gosh, it is the humans that are causing all of this climate change. I doubt it, unless you start to really consider what is going on with uh, with the the galactic, if you will, events of the sun and so on, or the harp technology that we have um, being used across the planet. Okay, now the real story that i wanted to get into is what's going on in the levant when i call it the levant because that encompasses pretty much all of the eastern coast of the mediterranean sea whether you're talking about gaza the sinai peninsula up through syria jordan and also turkey lebanon all of those countries they're called the levant it's an antiquated term uh but i use it because it lumps everybody together and well that's what i think should be happening here We're now starting to see what's really the end goal here. And the end goal throughout all of this is something called Greater Israel. Greater Israel does not just assume that Israel takes over the West Bank and the Gaza Strip. Greater Israel takes over, essentially, everything from the Sinai Peninsula all the way up through Turkey, out to the Tigris and the Euphrates into Iraq. And it also assumes that Israel is going to be the major geopolitical player in the region, and it subsequently balkanizes, breaks up all of these Arab countries so that they cannot regain any of their strength or become a threat or maintain its threat capacity toward Israel itself. Suddenly, you understand why everything has been going on in the way that it has been since September 11th, the project for the new American century. A whole bunch of dual citizens in the Bush administration came up, along with uh, Dick Cheney, came up with a plan to basically blow apart any sort of opposition to American hegemony. And some of that, along with Israel's goals— were to balkanize the Middle East. Other little tidbits in the project for the new American century, which is now tough to find, by the way, uh, the, the article, not the article, but the document that made up the project for the new American century and all the goals that they stated and how they go about doing it. One of those methods to maintain American hegemony included creating biological and chemical weapons that targeted specific genotypes. Well, wouldn't you know, 
we're finding those bio labs that has done all of the genetic research throughout the world thanks to the Russians because they are now releasing the data that I've brought up many times before about the bio labs that they've found throughout the Ukraine. And in some instances, they're saying that there are at least a thousand of these bio labs over in Taiwan, which makes this a strategic threat to China and also any other of those countries that are near Taiwan itself especially when you have these megalomaniacs in charge of these policies. So we're finding ourselves in this situation, in a compromised situation, and I don't think the West really has a plan to get out of it because the United States has done nothing but escalate the situation in the same way that they've escalated the situation in the Ukraine. There's no talk of peace. There's no talk of resolving the issue. The only resolve that they're mentioning is to stand behind our stalwart ally Israel. Stand behind the Ukraine and fund them as much as we can. Well, over the weekend, over the course of two days, there were 84 military flights going from America and Europe into Israel. No air train traffic has been seen like that on the planet since before the invasion of Iraq. So why are they putting so much material into Israel? I think what we're going to be seeing is something along the lines of what I mentioned last week. Why would you have two carrier groups going into that part of the world to defend Israel, to maintain Israel's protection against the ravaging Muslims throughout the region, like Iran and Hezbollah and Hamas. Do you really think that Israel needs that much more protection? I don't. I do suspect that the Israeli military is not up to snuff because you have a lot of reservists. Yes, they've called up 300,000 people, but are they actually competent? And if we look at all of the social media posts, specifically from the female reservists in the Israeli military where they're up there dancing and doing TikTok moves and all of that, I would think that they are probably not as well-trained as they portray themselves to be. So what is really going to happen here? If it is true that the United States is really pumping their military material into Israel and not reinforcing Israeli efforts— I suspect that what the United States is going to do is use Israel as a springboard to go into Syria, break up Syria, and finally complete what it has been trying to do for a very long time by funding ISIS, training ISIS, taking over Syria's oil fields in the eastern region of it, which, by the way, is close to, I think, 80 or 90 percent of Syria's oil has been just taken over by the United States. No questions asked, no declaration of war. The United States just went in there and took it over and started to steal serious oil. That would explain why there is a massive U.S. buildup. And, of course, the United States could potentially put in tripwires, essentially putting troops in the way of opponents. So that if any of these opponents from maybe uh, Lebanon or Jordan or Hezbollah 
attacks Israel, they would first have to go through American troops. Then America has the justification to go in and bomb the hell out of everybody and invade other countries, to balkanize them, to create this concept of what they call Greater Israel. Now, what exactly is Greater Israel? You have to go back to a guy by the name of Theodor Herzl. Theodor Herzl was an Austro-Hungarian Jewish journalist and political activist. And by the way, he was born in the 1800s, died in the early 1900s, had an enormous beard, uh, but it didn't. It wasn't one of these massive Orthodox or Hasidic Jewish beards. It was well-kept, by the way, from the pictures that I see. Um, and he is essentially the father of what we call Zionism today. He formed a Zionist organization, and he also tried to create a homeland for the Jews. So there's a lot to Theodore Herzl. I actually started to read some of his diaries, and it's very interesting to learn about this guy because uh, what we know Zionism to be today is not exactly what Theodore Herzl had in mind. Because on page 7 of his diary, so you don't have to go deep into this, he talks about what we could do about the Jewish question. That's what he calls it, because he's the whole basis of this is that the Jews don't have a homeland anywhere in the 1800s, so they have to find some place. I brought this up before. They suggested Uganda. They suggested, I believe, Argentina or Chile, uh, and it didn't work out. I mean, please justify a Jewish homeland in Uganda or or Chile or Argentina, right? <laughs> Those are some really lost tribes that you found there. But in his diaries, Theodore Herzl said, I could still recall two different conceptions of the question and its solution, which I had in the course of several years. About two years ago, I wanted to solve the Jewish question, at least in Austria, with the help of the Catholic Church. I wish to gain access to the Pope and say to him, help us against the anti-Semites, and I will start a great movement for the free and honorable conversion of Jews to Christianity. Wowee! So does the father of Zionism really have a religious bone in his body if he's willing to convert Jews over to Christianity and acknowledge Jesus Christ himself? First and honorably, by virtue, he says, of the fact that the leaders of this movement, myself in particular, would remain Jews and as such would propagate conversion to the faith of the majority. The conversion was to take place in broad daylight, Sundays at noon, in St. Stephen's Cathedral, with festive processions and amidst the pealing of bells, not in shame as individuals have converted up to now, but with proud gestures. And because the Jewish leaders would remain Jews, escorting the people only to the threshold of the church and themselves staying outside, the whole performance was to be elevated by a touch of great candor. That's right. He wanted to sacrifice the religion of Judaism him, his, itself to convert everybody to accept Christ if they could have some kind of homeland 
and conscript the Catholic Church to stop what they call anti-Semitism, which, oddly enough, if you read throughout his diaries, you find out that not a lot of people throughout Europe really like Jewish people. I mean, they would just drive down the road, or, well, uh, in their horses and buggies, ride down the road, and just shout slurs at him because he had a beard, or throw things at them. Uh, so it, <laughs> there, was, there was outright bigotry all throughout Europe at this time. But this is the father of Zionism. That's a magnificent display of what he truly thinks is going on here. And it's not necessarily about what they would consider to be uh, that Zionism is completely enmeshed with the concept of Judaism being the only religion. Because you've got the father of this movement saying, eh, if we can get a spot on our own, sure, we'll accept Christ. We'll eat the wafers. We'll take a sip of the wine. I'm not going to do it. But the generations after me, they're going to buy into it because they're going to have somebody like me doing it. At the same time, Theodore Herzl said the area of the Jewish state stretches from the brook of Egypt to the Euphrates. That is where we get the idea of greater Israel from. And you're starting to see that more and more today because the IDF has now reached the outskirts of Gaza City. They've cut the, the highways, the north-south highway up there. And Netanyahu is now calling for smiting Amalek, which is a town. Now, we already seen Netanyahu come out there and reference biblical material to essentially say that you shouldn't spare man, woman, child, pets, goats, oxen, anything that you can possibly imagine. Everything must die. That's what Netanyahu has been calling for. And then you also had last week some other idiot over in Israel uh, we have here from palestinechronicle.com, uh, Moisha Faglin, and he wants to turn Gaza into Dresden. So if you don't know what Dresden is, it was a massive war crime perpetrated on the German citizenry of Dresden by the Allies, by the United States and Britain in particular. They firebombed this city so much that it created its own inferno so that the cold air was being sucked in from the low ground along the sides by the fire, by the conflagration, being funneled up, and then this hot air would then fall down around the city itself and would just propagate this inferno. A massive amount of people died. There was no reason for Dresden to be firebombed like this. And there were a lot of civilians that lost their lives during all of that. It wasn't necessarily a strategic city. It was a more, uh, I guess, moralistic city, a, a Pyrrhic kind of victory over this, because it was the cultural center at the time of a lot of German socially accepted ways. You're talking about architecture. You're talking about art and all that stuff. That was what's in what was in Dresden. So now we've got this idiot, Moisha, calling for the same thing. And 
He's wondering why Gaza hasn't been burned to ashes immediately. But the problem with all of this is that you have Netanyahu trying to create a new homeland for the Palestinians. Wowee! Isn't that something? The irony is just off the charts here. Because now the displaced are going to displace the people that have been living there. Interestingly enough, Netanyahu is trying to, and I would assume with the United States, get Egypt to accept all of the Palestinians. Where? In the Sinai Peninsula. So this is once again Lebensraum, living space, that the Israelis want. They want the Gazans out. They want the people in the West Bank out. So it's looking like the United States and Israel, they're going to start bribing countries to accept the Palestinians and rebuild the cities that the Israelis are about to destroy. So verified documents from the Israeli Ministry of Intelligence on October the 13th suggests forced displacement of Gaza civilians to Egypt would yield positive and long-term strategic results. A week after the Hamas attack, Israel's Ministry of Intelligence issued a special secret document. And they're basically wanting to push the citizens into Sinai. Number one, four different points. Instruct Palestinian civilians to vacate North Gaza ahead of a land operation. Number two, sequential land operations from north to south of Gaza. Number three, routes across Rafah to be left clear. Number four, establish tent cities in northern Sinai and construct cities to resettle Palestinians in Egypt. And also part of this plan is to make sure that there is a buffer zone in Sinai and a no-go zone in Sinai. So that means that all of the Gazans that would be relocated into Egypt, which, by the way, the Egyptian government said absolutely not, so I would look for a color revolution to occur in Egypt sometime in the near future, um, they will be isolated. There will be a buffer territory so that the Gazans could not return to the Gaza Strip, even if they tried. They're trying to bribe the Gazans to leave uh, the West Bank, not the West Bank, the Gaza Strip. That's what they're trying to do. The first step is to create these tent cities. Second step, somebody somewhere is going to be funded to build new cities in Sinai. Very, very interesting, don't you think? Because this matches almost perfectly with the Oded Yinon plan. Now, we're going back to india.shafakna.com uh, February 5th of 2020, uh, and it is an excellent primer to figure out what exactly is this greater Israel concept, and it shows a map here, and the map is essentially going from the Nile River in a straight line almost to the border of Kuwait, Iraq, and Iran, so that greater Israel does have a port on that side of Saudi Arabia. It goes up north, just a little bit south of Baghdad, goes into Turkey, and basically demolishes Syria, Lebanon, and Jordan, and incorporates it into Israel's border. That's what the Oded Yanan plan basically wants. So, uh, we have to go back a little bit even further. In 2019, Netanyahu has said, today... 
September before the 2019 elections, I announced my intention with the formation of the next government to establish Israeli sovereignty on the Jordan Valley and the Northern Dead Sea. Well, that's a lot bigger than what Israel is today. Seems like someone has imperialistic intentions. The glittering jewel of democracy in the Middle East is being a little aggressive, don't you think? Rabbi Fishman, the promised land extends from the river of Egypt up to the Euphrates. It includes parts of Syria and Lebanon and historic Palestine, South Lebanon up to Sidon and the Latani River, Syria's Golan Heights, Horan Plain and Dera, and control of the Hejaz Railway from Dera to Oman, Jordan, as well as the Gulf of Aqaba. Some Zionists, according to the article, wanted more. Land from the Nile in the west to the Euphrates to the east, comprising Palestine, Lebanon, western Syria, and even southern Turkey. In the Atlantic in 2008, the U.S. Military's Armed Forces Journal in 2006 also both published widely circulated maps that closely followed the outline of the Yanan plan. Aside from a divided Iraq, which the Biden plan also calls for, the Yunnan plan calls for a divided Lebanon, Egypt, and Syria. The partitioning of Iran, Turkey, Somalia, and Pakistan also all fall into with these views. The Yunnan plan also calls for a disillusion in northern Africa and forecasts it as starting from Egypt and then spilling over into Sudan, Libya, and the rest of the region. Now you know where the Arab Spring came from. It was a way to balkanize North Africa to break up any significant power blocks that would be a threat to this plan of Israel's and the United States's. Because you can't just say it's only Israel because the United States is essentially backing up whatever Israel wants. The plan operates on two essential premises. To survive Israel, one, must become an imperial regional power. Number two, must affect the division of the whole area into small states by the dissolution of all existing Arab states. Small here will depend on the ethnic or sectarian composition of each state. Consequently, it is the hope of Israel that the sectarian-based states become Israel's satellites and, ironically, its source of moral legitimation. This is not a new idea, nor does it surface for the first time in Zionist strategic thinking. Indeed, fragmenting all Arab states into smaller units has been a recurrent theme. You, in this article, have the explanation of U.S. foreign policy and why it's doing what it's been doing since 2001 and the implementation of the project for the new American century. This plan is severely behind schedule because they intended to do all of this within the span of a couple of years. But that didn't work, obviously. We're into decade two now. Actually, we're well into decade three. It's been two decades. It's 2023. That's why they invaded Afghanistan. That's why they invaded Iraq. That's why they're trying to break up Syria with Western-backed Muslim fanatics in the form of ISIS and just invading Syria outright. That's why you have Egypt, North Africa, Libya being broken up with color revolutions. That's why Turkey is probably under threat as well. And on top of that, Israel gets to claim all of the oil fields that are technically under international law property of the Gaza Strip. 
you're looking at massive geopolitical goals unfurling before you. And they're using this terrorist attack that occurred on October 7th from the Gaza Strip into Israel to attack settlements as the precursor to start another world war. How is this going to happen? In the way that I described it, color revolutions, the United States putting in massive amounts of material in Israel, probably to go after Syria and try to break them up. The United States has been under attack lately in Iraq, but it's not so bad because it's, because it's not completely focused. You've got a lot of rabble in there. But this could get worse. If they truly try to implement a plan like this and try to overthrow the current regime in Egypt, try to balkanize Syria, destroy Lebanon, and ravage Jordan, and even parts of Saudi Arabia, then this has Third World War written all over it. Is the United States and NATO and Israel ready for something like this? Do they really think conventional weapons could stop all of the Muslim world from attacking Israel and taking out the United States' base of operations in the Middle East and the Levant? I don't think these megalomaniacs in NATO and the United States and the West have any idea what's going on here. Or maybe they do. And maybe this is exactly what they want. That's going to be it for me. It's the Last Call Podcast with Chris Michaels. Like me, find me, share me. Remember to be a critical thinker and a lovable fuzzball, just like your intrepid host and brilliant broadcaster. I'll be back, as always, over the next couple of days with another few podcasts to regale you with and hold you over until the weekend. And uh, what else do I... Oh, uh, I, I should be doing an interesting podcast uh, with Greg Bolden on Thursday. So make sure you follow both of us on X, uh, formerly known as Twitter, uh, so that you can see us live on Friday and uh, also possibly on Thursday evening. Uh, so it's always a fun time. An excellent guest is supposed to be lined up for this week. Hopefully, I'm 99% sure that's going to happen. It's going to be about manifestation, why it's important. And I'm really looking forward to this guest because he's one of my dear friends, too. So go find us on X, Last Call Caravan, and also Greg Bolden, America and Bolden, over on the Out Loud Network, uh, America Out Loud Network. And uh, make sure you're tuned in this Thursday and Friday for that. Okay, I'll be back tomorrow. Gird your loins for then. <laughs>